Hello, my name is Al Brady, and I want to welcome you to this service. I'm so pleased you've joined me, and I trust that it will be a blessing to you. Let me encourage you to invite others to join with us. Now I'm going to read the scripture from Paul's letter to the Galatians, beginning at chapter 6 and verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would compel you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who receive circumcision do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But far be it from me to glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I unto the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, Peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule, upon the Israel of God. Henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. But here's the verse we are going to be speaking about. But far be it from me to glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. 
Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. Oh Lord, which art our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Some years ago, a group of prominent people were given a list of a hundred famous events and asked to write them in terms of their importance and significance for humankind. Top place was given to Columbus's discovery of America. The crucifixion of Christ was tied for 14th place, along with the discovery of X-rays and the Wright brothers' first plane flight. But for the believer, it's totally different. The believer is simply drawn to the mystery of the cross as the essential message of Scripture. The Apostle Paul affirmed, But far be it from me to glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I unto the world. Paul becomes very personal in his angry letter to the Galatians. He begins with his credentials as an apostle. He talks about his career as a missionary, the sacrifices he's made for Christ, his conversion on the Damascus Road. He deliberately builds himself up in the eyes of his hearers for no other reason than to knock himself down. Paul wants these foolish Galatians to know just how little stock he places in any human component of Christianity. Faith lies not in anything that we can do for God, but in something that God has done for us, without us, and even in spite of us. So does a believer have any cause to glory? Then let he or she look away from self, away from his or her own small service and tiny achievements, to a cross that towers o'er the wrecks of time. Far be it from me to glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I unto the world. First of all, we glory in the cross of Christ because the cross reveals the visible love of the invisible God. The Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And human experience is a rare thing for one person to give his life for another, even if that be a good person, though there have been a few who've had the courage to do it. Yet the proof of God's amazing love is this, that it was while we were yet sinners, powerless, helpless, Christ died for us. What is the greatest single thing you know about God? Asked a cynical young college student of a minister. The minister thought a long time before he answered. He said there are many great things one could say about God, but I believe the greatest, most perplexing, most marvelous, most wonderful thing I know about God is God's love. Apart from God's love, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ would make no sense whatsoever. Leslie Weatherhead was on board a ship out in the middle of the Mediterranean. They were passing near to Stromboli, the famous island volcano. Suddenly there was a great burst of flame from the volcano, and it lit up the ocean for miles around. The darkness gave way to the light. In a little while, the light subsided, and it was dark again. What did it mean? It meant that for a few hours there had been revealed something of the fire that continually burns in the heart of that mountain. That's a tremendous illustration of the cross. As we think of Jesus on the cross, see the redemptive love that put him there, the redemptive forgiveness for those who unheedingly left him there. Suddenly we realize we're not looking at a cross at all. We're looking through a window. We're looking through a window right into the very heart of the living God of this universe and his personal love for you and for me. D.M. Bailey, who was a great Christian, observed the most remarkable fact in the whole history of religious thought is this, that when the early Christians looked back and pondered on the dreadful thing that had happened, it made them think of the redeeming love of God. Two things need to be said about the redeeming love of God. First, 
It always takes the initiative. It goes into action first. And second, it's always for the undeserving. I have a friend who says she hated cancer. She hated cancer from the first moment she read about it. She hated it even more when she became a pastor and she would visit in the hospitals and visit her people who were in agony and suffering with cancer. But she said she hated it most of all when she was visiting a saintly woman in Mexico, Missouri, who was gasping for breath. It happened to be her mother. And she said she has hated cancer and loathed it ever since. That's the way I feel about sin. I've hated sin all my life since I first read about it. I've hated it even more when I found out I was a sinner. I've hated it even more when I see what it does to this world, greed and war and hatred and people being judgmental of other people. But I've hated it most of all when I see an innocent man hanging on a cross, suffering there for you and for me. Some time ago, I was at a preacher's meeting, and I heard this woman give a testimony. I'm not going to give the whole thing to you, just a little of it. She said she had five children, and she had not wanted any one of the five. She had hated her pregnancy. She said, especially with this last one, she tried to have him aborted. She had sunk so low in her heart and had so little love. But when that little child was born several months later, he was perfect in every way. And she said, that little boy by far was the most affectionate child I ever had. He would say, I love you, Mommy, when the other children would never say anything. I love you, Mommy, I love you, Mommy, I love you, Mommy. She said she finally came to the conclusion that that was God telling her that he still loved her. No matter what we've done, how we've lived, what we haven't done, God loves us, each one. If we were together in the same room, I would simply say now we would sing, Jesus loves me. And we would put our arms around ourselves. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Then I would ask us to shake hands with somebody, symbolic of the fact that God loves them too. So first of all, we glory in the cross of Christ because the cross reveals the visible love of the invisible loving God. And then secondly, we glory in the cross of Christ because the cross reveals that we too have a victory. Oh yes, that cross is foolishness to those people who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those of us who are being saved. We have a victory over evil. In one of the churches I served in another city years ago, there was a man who came to that worship service every Sunday for six months. He didn't miss a single Sunday. He made some beautiful wooden crosses for me that I kept on my desk in my study. They were beautiful. Then I remember I received that call at annual conference. It came from his wife. She said, Hal, he just raped his own granddaughter. Well, I'm going to tell you, I was stunned. It took me a few minutes to get myself together. When I did, I hung up the phone. I went to see her that I went to the jail to see him, and I went back to my study. I was so disappointed in that man, I didn't want to have anything to do with him. So I picked up that cross, and I was getting ready to bam it into the garbage can when all of a sudden God spoke to me, not in an audible voice, but in the deep conviction of my soul. And this is what God said. Wasn't that the reason he died for sinners? And so I very carefully put that cross back up on my desk. And imagine how I felt the next day when I went to see him. And he said with tears streaming from his eyes, how last night I confessed my sin and God forgave me. While we were yet sinners, powerless, helpless, 
Christ died for us. One of my favorite all-time descriptions of God is that of the great garbage collector. When I first read that in somebody's book, I thought it was a sacrilege to call God a garbage collector. But now it's one of my favorite pictures. Suppose you move into a new home and you make no provision for the disposal of your garbage. What do you decide to do? You're going to put it in the kitchen for a few days. So you stack it up there a few days. And the first thing you know, a stench begins to develop in your kitchen. So you say, I've got to move it out of the kitchen. I've got to move it out on the back porch. So you move it out there for a few days. And you stack it up and you stack it up and you stack it up. Then that stench that was in your kitchen begins to move out into the community. So what do we do in the town of the community? We have to make an arrangement for somebody to come by and pick up what we can't dispose of ourselves. That's what God Almighty did at the cross with Christ. He made an arrangement to come by and pick up the sin and poison of our lives. And that's what he did. And that's the glory of the cross. I think one of the most exciting football games I ever saw was a Cotton Bowl game many years ago between Alabama and Rice. Rice had the ball on their own end zone about their own 15-yard line and they run a couple of plays, nothing had happened. Then all of a sudden, a halfback by the name of Dickie Magel got the ball and was through the Alabama line in secondary and long gone for a touchdown. When he hit the 50-yard stripe, there wasn't anybody within 20 yards of him. Suddenly, this Alabama boy jumped up off the bench, ran out there and smeared him as if nobody had seen him. He went back and sat down on the bench. Only 75,000 people saw him, that was all. There was a moment of stunned silence. People began to say, Oh, you dirty bum, throw him out, get him out of here. Terrible, get him out of here. Well, the referees, in an unusual decision, gave the touchdown to Rice. The game went on. The boy continued to sit with his head down. You know, that could ruin him. A look on the list showed his name was Tommy Lewis, and out beside it said, Captain, Captain of the Alabama team. He knew the rules. He was a good sport and all that. Then it suddenly dawned on us. Tommy Lewis could no longer explain what he had done than I can explain some of the things I've done this last week or you can explain some of the things that you have done. In a few minutes, people saw the Alabama coach get up off the bench and walk down to the end of the bench and put his arms around Tommy Lewis. There's no way of knowing what he said, but he probably said something like this. Tommy, we need you back in the game. Get in there. And don't you know the coach's words brought a forgiving healing power to Tommy Lewis's life because he was restored to the fellowship. There's a fellow by the name of Ellis McDougall who for years was ahead of the Georgia prison system. Before the Supreme Court decision on capital punishment, he was the only man that could put somebody to death without somebody coming after him. He said he'd had the part in the execution of six men. One of them was from Georgia. He said he'd never forget the morning they picked that fellow up and took him from the cell, handcuffed him, to the room where the electric chair was. He said they didn't want him to fight, so they cuffed him. They put him in the room and they strapped him down with straps around his chest, arms, and legs. And then in a few minutes, they asked him if he had anything to say and he sort of told them off. And then he turned and they cut the electrical power on and when it hit the man's body, it was so strong, it popped off every button off the man's shirt. And then the man was dead in a chair. When the room was cleared, Ellis McDougall and the guard went back over to unfasten the straps around his chest, arms, and legs. And when they did, they saw that his shirt was open where the buttons had been ripped off. And they saw this tattoo, and it said, born to lose. Not on your life, 
That man wasn't born to lose. Nobody's born to lose because of God's love for them in Jesus Christ. We have a victory over evil. And then we have a victory over suffering. In the final analysis, there's no answer to suffering. Let me ask you a question. Will it comfort a bereaved parent to tell them that the death of their child is a result of the divine impartiality of God? Even if it's true, will it comfort? Will it comfort to say, you know, suffering makes for a positive contribution? If suffering is so good, why are we trying to get rid of it? Why are we working to abolish it if it's so good? Or if you subscribe to the theory, no gain without pain. If God is God, can he do it in a less hurtful or tragic way? So no doubt you see where we are. We don't need an explanation. We need a victory. We don't need to elaborate a theory. We need a power. And God has given us that power at the cross of Christ. Now my faith is definitely the faith of an empty cross. But sometimes when I stand in a Catholic hospital and I see the crucifix on the wall, I get the idea that it belongs there. Because somehow in the suffering of the cross, we meet God where God met us in the midst of pain and tears. We have a victory over suffering. And then we have a victory over death. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. Eugene O'Neill in his play, Lazarus Laughed, demonstrated this in a beautiful way. You remember Lazarus was one that Jesus brought back from the dead. He was the brother of Mary and Martha. Well, he was brought up in Bethany. But he left Bethany, he went down to Athens, Greece, and he went into the square. And while he was down there, he confronted the horrible Gaius Caligula, who was Tiberius Caesar's chosen successor. While they were standing there, the spies came up and said, Caligula, they hate you. He said, I don't care if they hate me as long as they fear me. He said, I like to watch people die. And then he looked over here at Lazarus and said, by the way, I understand you're telling people not to fear death. You keep on doing that, and you'll be the next one to die. Lazarus, sort of like he was from another land, said, with a smile on his face, Death is dead, Caligula. Death is dead. And so Paul said, O death, where is thy sting? O grief, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then one other thing, we glory in the cross of Christ because God has given us a blessed stewardship for which we are responsible. Up to this point, we've been carrying the cross for him. And he's carried it for us. Now he wants us to carry it again for him. There was an author that went to a school play to see his four-year-old child in the Christmas passage. He said it was just as bad as he thought it was going to be. He said when they were sitting there, the teacher finally came out and said, now we're getting ready to have the Christmas passage presented by the four-year-old connecting class. And about that time, the curtain went up and the Jonathan just barely got the crib on the stage before the curtains went up. Then they looked up, and here came three virgin berries from out, of the, from out of the corner. They stationed themselves around the crib, and they began to wave at their parents. There had to be three because they had collected three costumes during the years. Then there came two Josephs from behind the curtains. They came and stationed themselves around the crib, and they began to pick at their noses. In a minute, there came 20 little angel girls. They were dressed in white with gauze wings. They came and stationed themselves in a perfect symmetry around the room. And then they were followed by 20 little shepherd boys who were dressed in burlap sacks and had an assortment of things that were supposed to be crooks. But at this point, an amazing thing came to light. The teacher wanted them to have a perfect symmetry around the crib, so she had drawn crosses for the boys and circles for the angels. But what happened was they had practiced in their ordinary clothes. 
So when the light of the presentation came, here these little girls were with their big gauze wings, and they stood not only on the circles, but on the crosses as well. And then those 20 little shepherd boys started looking for their places, and God knows angels were treated as they had never been treated before. And this one little boy who couldn't seem to find anything, he happened to spy the teacher, and he said, because of these blasted angels, I can't find the cross. That's the way it is sometimes, isn't it? Because of the blasted angels, sometimes people can't find the cross. And we can't find the cross if we're not good in stewardship. Now, what I'd like to do is give you five laws of stewardship. I'm going to put a pretend dollar bill in my hand. All right. The first rule, God is the owner of all things by right of creation and regeneration. If God is the owner of all things by right of creation and regeneration, then I am a steward. I am responsible for whatever God has entrusted me with. If God is the owner of all things by right of creation and regeneration, I am a steward, then I am responsible. I am responsible for choosing, for witnessing, for loving. I am responsible for the kingdom of God. Responsibility is the key to stewardship. If I am unfaithful, I will be punished. What is my punishment? My failure. If I fail to be what God wants me to be, then everything around me will collapse and come to naught. If I am faithful, I will be rewarded. What is my reward? Always more work. If you ask somebody to do a good job and they do a good job, they will be rewarded with more work. Now take this imaginary doll and put it in the church collection plates. Now would you notice this hand is open. It's open like God's hand. Have you ever thought about it? This just may be the only hand God has, your hand and mine. So far be it from me to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I unto the world. The cross reveals the visible love of the invisible loving God. The cross reveals we have an everlasting victory. And the cross reveals there is a blessed stewardship for which we are responsible. Now I'd like to give you this story and I'll be finished. They were having a, a story at the movie theater on the life of Christ. The movie theater was packed with people. And everybody got real quiet when Jesus started walking toward Golgotha carrying his own cross. And this one man was really intent on the greatest moment in the world's history when all of a sudden a lady in front of him turned to another lady and said, let's go. This is the place where we came in. The man just couldn't understand how this lady could be so crass at that most significant moment in the world's history. But then he got to thinking, you know, she's right. The cross of Jesus is the place where we all come in. That's our glory. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you again for this opportunity of being together. We pray that through something said or sung, somebody's life has been touched and changed. Thank you again for all the blessings of this life, and we'll be sure to give you the praise and the glory. Amen. Thank you for joining us.